This is the Shifting Perceptions Podcast. Hi there, I'm Abira. Hi, I'm Cherry. Hi, I'm Debbie. Hi, I'm Sabrina. We're creating a platform where conversations about substance use can happen. Hi there, this is Abira. Welcome back to our podcast, Shifting Perceptions. Today we have the opportunity to hear from Sandra Kahun Chu, the Director of Research and Advocacy at the Canadian HIV um, and AIDS Legal Network and a lawyer by profession. Sandra will share her experience advocating for harm reduction in prisons. Hi, Hi. how are you doing? Good, thanks for having me on this podcast. Thank you. And just to start off, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and your work with the Legal Network here and how you ended up um, working in the area of harm reduction in prisons. Sure. So the Legal Network is a human rights organization. Uh, we're based in Canada, but we do work in Canada and globally at the intersection of human rights that touch on HIV. So that ranges from people living with HIV and the criminalization of people living with HIV to people who do sex work, to people who do drugs, people in prison, LGBTQ communities. And that's how we start working on prison um, harm reduction, because people in prison have much higher rates of HIV and hepatitis C than people outside of the community. So that's sort of how the work originated. And so our work in prisons touches on everything from access to clean needles, to access to naloxone, to access to opioid agonist therapy. Right. And since this is a very specific sort of demographic, mm-hmm. um, and, and you are coming from sort of this legal perspective, can you speak to a little bit about um, some of the criminalization of drugs and how that's contributed to this um, problem with having increased drug use in prisons and mm-hmm. that connection. Yeah, so we know that in Canada that drug use is criminalized, uh, possessing drugs, trafficking for the uh, purposes of, uh, possession for the purposes of trafficking, importing, exporting, and a lot of people who end up in prison are there for drug-related offenses. Even mm-hmm. if the underlying offense isn't necessarily drug-related, we know that drugs are implicated in a, a majority of uh, the offenses I think it was like 80% of people who, a men who go into the federal prison system have a substance use issue mm. and it's implicated in a lot of other offenses. So we know that people go to uh, jail or prison, use drugs. It doesn't stop at the prison gates. Uh, people have very creative ways of getting drugs into prison. And unfortunately, when you're in prison system, you don't have the same access to treatment or harm reduction measures. And so that's something that we've been fighting for a number of years to get people um, equivalent access to health and harm reduction measures. But because um, going back to your question of the criminalization of drug use, we have a lot of people who use drugs in the prison system, and then all the health uh, consequences we don't have access to health care. Right. And one of the broader, I think, conversations that I'm sure the legal network has is advocating for decriminalization. Mm-hmm. Or in, can- in Canada, we've also had some conversation on legalization, well, very recently of cannabis to start. Right. And right. I'm wondering if you can sort of provide this distinction between the two of decriminalization, legalization, and what role does that broader conversation have mm-hmm. in the prison setting? Um, well, they, they have different meanings in different contexts, because I also work in the issue of sex work. But in the drug policy world, decriminalization means removing the criminal penalties that are associated with certain drug offenses. And mostly in Canada, it's, it's focused on the issue of um, criminalization of possession. So when we talk mm-hmm. decrim in Canada, it's usually related to possession for personal use. Um, legalization involves creating a whole regulatory framework, like we have just done with cannabis, Um, about how to um, sell drugs, regulate drugs, purchase drugs, and then rules around all those things. So um, you're not only removing the criminal penalties, you're also creating a whole new legal framework 
to govern how we use and consume and sell and buy drugs. So that's the distinction. Um, at the Legal Network, we are advocating for both because I think we can't really remove the criminal penalties without also responsibly regulating how drugs are consumed mm -hmm. um, and ensuring the best health care, health um, and human rights for people who use drugs. Um, it's related to our prison work because, as I said before, a lot of people who use drugs end up in prison mm -hmm. because of the criminal penalties. So, and, and we also know it's related to HIV um, and harm reduction because when you don't have like a, a regulated supply, then there's a toxic drug supply and people are are overdosing or, or they're getting infected with HIV or hepatitis C when they're not using in a way that ha um, enables them to use uh, with like sterile injection equipment, for instance. Mm -hmm. For sure. And we've talked a little bit about the prison population as being sort of high risk. Um, mm -hmm. And specifically, since uh, this podcast here is more focused on the opioid crisis, mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if you can sort of um, talk a little bit about um, the need for overdose prevention and what that crisis has looked like in the prison population. Mm -hmm. uh, sure, I think there's this misconception that drugs, again, just stop yeah. at the prison gate. Uh, but we know, I've talked to prisoners who say, in some cases, there's even more access to drugs in prison. Mm -hmm. And so if you have like a tainted drug supply in the community, you're going to see that in prison, except you don't have access to the same things you do in the community. You have far less access to naloxone, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, just recently, correctional guards, uh, the correctional officers have been given access. Before that, in the federal system and in some provincial systems, still it was just it's just healthcare. Mm -hmm. And if healthcare is working nine to five, what, what that means at nighttime when people might be using it is no one's there to administer naloxone. Mm -hmm. Now that the guards have access, it's a better situation. But prisoners still don't have access. And I've, and I've also spoken to people who were just released, for instance, who have seen people overdose, and the matter of seconds that uh, where a prisoner, if they had access to naloxone. Mm -hmm and could have administered uh, naloxone. That could have been the difference between life or death or like really severe harms that happen when you don't have, when you're, uh, when you're overdosing. So um, we're seeing the same overdose situation increasingly in the, in the prison system. Uh, access to numbers is really difficult to get because mm -hmm. prison does often don't release that information to the public. Mm -hmm. But um, the legal network, for instance, uh, was participated in an inquest in Hamilton-Wentworth um, jail. Passan was one of the participants in that, prisoners with HIV, AIDS Support Action Network, mm -hmm. and HELCO. Uh, so they're, they're, we work closely with both these organizations, and um, we wanted to make the case that prisoners should have access to naloxone, not just healthcare staff and not just correctional officers. Um, we also made the case for more access to opioid substitution therapy, mm -hmm. for needle and syringe programs, all the things that we know promote prisoner health. You can actually like foster dialogue between healthcare staff and prisoners when you provide these tools to prisoners and make them feel like someone actually cares about their health. Um, but but we know like in the prison system, people just assume that there's no access uh, to drugs because you're locked up. But mm -hmm. but there in fact there is in some cases more access and but people don't have the tools to protect themselves. Right, and I'm wondering what are the reasons that are given sort of against and like mm -hmm. you know when you're going to. Um, court or like what are the reasons yeah. against giving prisoners access? Mm -hmm. There's usually two main reasons. One is we don't want to endorse drug use. Mm -hmm. um, if we give these prisoners and then we're like uh, endorsing something that's prohibited. We, he we hear that it's like from decades ago starting with condom distribution to mm -hmm. um, even opioid agonist therapy. It was always like uh, you know, we're, you're putting us into this dilemma, especially the correctional officers. We're supposed to prevent people from using drugs, but now we're giving them the tools to use safely, um, which isn't actually a dilemma because we see that in the community. That's what harm reduction is. So it's a, sort of usually the first set of arguments. And the mm -hmm. second is we're, you're going to um, endanger us. 
so we give people naloxone. One of the most ridiculous things that we heard in the context of that inquest I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. is um, that prisoners could use naloxone um, implements as store drugs. I mean, you could store drugs anywhere in your cell, but like they could somehow use the naloxone kit to store their drugs. Um, we hear if you give people opioid agonist therapy, there'll be diversion, meaning people will like save it and give it to their peers or other um, mm-hmm. people in prison, which sometimes happens, but I mean, that's not a reason to deny people healthcare. If we give people sterile injection equipment, they're gonna use it to stab us or to hurt us or hurt other people, which is absolutely not borne out by the evidence. So it usually boils down to like, either we're endorsing drug use by doing those things or you're gonna make us unsafe. Right. Yeah, that, that that's a difficult thing to navigate. And I know you mm-hmm. folks have been advocating um, around this area and, and you've mentioned this conquest with Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if we could unpack that a little bit more because mm-hmm. I'm curious as to like, what was the primary concern that was being addressed and, mm-hmm. um, and the decision that was made yeah. as a consequence or is that still happening? No, the, the jury in that case released the recommendations. Um, it was in the context of a number of men who had fatally overdosed. Um, and the idea was, what can we do to prevent this from happening again? And, and in fact, it's still happening. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the, the families of the, the men who died were participants. Um, and then usually there's um, the coroner who's there and then the prison system, which is there. And, you know, you hear evidence from doctors who work with people in prison. You hear from prisoners' families. You hear from groups like PASAN, mm-hmm. the group I just mentioned, right. Prisoners with HIV AIDS Support Action Network. But what what the prison system could do to make it better. Um, sadly, none of the recommendations are ever binding. So you sometimes you see inquest recommendations just like again and again repeating themselves, uh, but they're not binding. So the prison has to take it into consideration and they might be willing to adopt some things or not some other things. Um, but there are a number of things like, you know, equivalency of healthcare, um, better treatment to a better access to addiction treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were pushing, like I said, for naloxone access, right. immediate access, meaning like prisoners get access, better access to op- opioid agonist therapy, better access to healthcare, um, more respectful treatment of people in prison because in the prison system, you often see security trumps everything. And we're saying mm-hmm. healthcare should always be in important and paramount in some, mm-hmm. I mean, in some cases, especially when people are, are at risk of dying. Um, so that was why, that was what, uh, prompted the inquest mm-hmm. um, and then the recommendations were made um, and there's a series of recommendations uh, including stuff like you, you know like better a focus on health care and access to treatment but there's also some security related questions better assessments when people come into prison to see if you have mm-hmm. your, your someone who uses and needs access to treatment okay. the problem is that at the end of the day I, I've heard it uh, boiled down by our colleague at pass and best that like at the end of the day you can make all these recommendations but if harm reduction is really just like it's it's not a concept that people care about in prison Mm -hmm. then it's almost meaningless because everything security um uh, correctional guards concerns they always override healthcare prisoners so there's no there's no like culture of harm reduction in prison and Mm -hmm. i think that's just that's kind of what it boils down to and it's really it's tragic because people are dying inside Mm. yeah i think that was very well said and um for those folks who don't know the legal kind of understanding, um, there's no responsibility to like report back on recommendations following an inquest. Um, report. I mean, I guess there, there's. I don't know if there's a legal responsibility. I actually don't, don't know the answer to that. I know they're not binding. Meaning, right. in a court case, if a court 
order something, yeah. it's binding, meaning you have to comply. Yeah. In an inquest, the jury can say, you can. I have 100 recommendations, but you could come back and adopt none of them. Mm-hmm. And that's there's no legal repercussions for it. Um, it's persuasive, though. But like if you, if you see a series of recommendations again and again and again, right. um, maybe it's helpful for advocacy later on. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not binding, which is okay. too bad. Yeah, I think that's an important way of recognizing the limitations of the tools we have as well. Um, And sort of as a lawyer, can you speak to maybe, you know, perhaps opportunities that have been a bit more successful Mm -hmm. and what kind of legal tools you've used for advocating for that kind of change? Mm -hmm. I think two, uh, one sort of legal-ish, extra legal, and one super legal. Mm -hmm. Um, The super legal one is litigation, obviously. So um, in the context of access to needle and syringe programs, uh, the legal network um, and partners like the Prisoners with HIV AIDS Support Action Network, KD, a former prisoner named Steve Simons, and the Canadian Aboriginal AIDS Network. Uh, we sued the federal government seven years ago in 2012 for access to sterile injection equipment or, or clean needles. Um, and that has been a very long, winding process. But in 2018, like almost one year ago today, uh, one year ago, the federal government announced uh, the introduction of what they call prison needle exchange programs in mm-hmm. federal prisons. So we we have no doubt that that was a result of this litigation, which is still ongoing. Like, But I don't think they would have uh, mm-hmm. introduced this if they didn't, weren't pressured. They felt the pressure of the, the litigation. So that's one tool. Um, I can point to actually something else that one of our colleagues in BC did, Prisoner Legal Services, uh, filed a complaint to the Canadian Human Rights Commission, a human rights complaint, and saying that people in federal prison there didn't have access to opioid agonist therapy or opioid substitution therapy Um, and that has led them to start discussions with the federal correctional service the extra legal tools we have is making appearances before parliamentary committees Mm -hmm. which is another way i think a lot of activists and advocates can um, try to affect change where you appear before a standing committee be it like public safety which governs prisons or justice which governs laws Mm -hmm. um, and make the case for why you think certain things should be um, accessible in prison or, or whatever the case you want to make. And that has been a pretty effective tool because these committees listen to your evidence and then they issue recommendations, which again, not binding, mm-hmm. but they're persuasive. And you can use those recommendations in court. So you can say, five years ago, I appeared before the committee and they said you should have clean needles in prison. And then, you know, that's actually something you can introduce as evidence in a court case. So there's all sort of intersecting and useful complementary legal and extra legal tools. And then media is also a huge one. Like trying to get the court of public opinion to support you because prisoners, as you probably know, and people who use drugs are not the most, um, they're not sympathetic to the larger public, I think. And so that's always been a challenge for us in our work. Yeah. And actually that leads really well to sort of what I wanted to also talk about is talking mm-hmm. about that stigma yeah. and the lack of uh, public concern as being a challenge and how you've seen that um, sort of happen and mm-hmm. maybe ways in which you've tried to address the fact that prisoners are not often humanized. Yeah, no, uh, for sure. And it's always been an uphill battle for us. Uh, We have done a number of things to try to address that. In um, 2009, we produced a report called Under the Skin, where we interviewed prisoners from across Canada. We interviewed 50 people. And we took pictures of them, and we had their firsthand accounts of injecting drug use in prison uh, accompanied by their, um, like an illustration of their photo. And so people can actually read first-hand accounts. Like, uh, so it's not just an abstract idea of you know throwing away the key and we just forget about these people. It was actually hearing about people. This is your brother, your sister, your mother, your, your auntie, whoever, mm-hmm. who's in prison, and they're affected, uh, very profoundly affected by drug use in prison and not having access to the tools. 
Um, another thing that I think we try to really convey is that people care about their health. Like I think that people also think people who use drugs or people in prison just don't care about their own health mm-hmm. and they totally do. And that's what we heard loud and clear through our interviews with people in prison that if they had access to opioid agonist therapy or naloxone or clean needles, they would totally be using that stuff because they want to protect themselves. Another thing that we did was um, we did a video series with also people, uh, formerly incarcerated people, mm-hmm. also talking about the drug use in prison. So we, we filmed them. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them have been released because it's really hard to do any kind of video yeah. work, as you probably know, in prison. Mm-hmm. And we interviewed them and we just heard sort of the same thing. They talked about what they saw in prison, um, their experiences with dependence or addiction, their experiences with drug use in prison. And then we, we created this website called Prison Health Now to put those videos out in the world and people could watch them. And that's sort of, sort of a few ways that we've been trying to, um, I guess, humanize what people dehumanize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when we talk about the opioid crisis, prisoners are really the bottom of the list in terms of mm-hmm. the conversation folks mm-hmm. are having. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to bring into light that those who are often most marginalized mm-hmm. are the ones who don't quite they're not they don't even make it to the conversation mm-hmm. yeah um, it is true and, and you don't even have I mean, the numbers you, we don't even know how many people are overdosing daily because they don't release those figures and that's a stark i mean not that we have great access to numbers mm-hmm. in the community but it's better access so it's sort of a hidden phenomenon mm-hmm. uh, which is really tragic for sure and and i guess we've sort of talked through a lot of different things in relation to the prison population i want to bring it back to what are some things that you want health professionals or advocates in this topic to sort of be familiar with or really know moving forward mm-hmm. like what are the key things that these folks need to know i think the key message i would like to push out is that um, people don't lose their rights to health care uh, when they go to prison I think people believe that they do and that like we should just make it the worst possible situation for people as a form of punishment, but they don't lose their rights to health care. It's actually enshrined in Canadian and international law. Um, and so when you have access to a supervised consumption services, you have access to needle and syringe programs, you have access to naloxone, oh, opioid agonist therapy, replace, like replacement other, other um, yeah. opioid therapies, um, and you don't have access to many of these things in prison, it's, it's really like further marginalizing already the most marginalized. These are the people who get criminalized for drug use who end up in prison. Many of them, not everyone, obviously. Um, But yet you're denying the the most people vulnerable to health risks, the tools that they might have been using in the community to protect themselves. And so equivalency in healthcare, what does that look like? There's a few things um, that you could push for. And I think um, health professionals all across Canada, um, not all provinces um, in the provincial jail system um it's not the um health care in the in the province so so in some provinces like ontario um correctional services are responsible for health care prisoners okay. meaning um but other, meaning that they mm-hmm. like they could decide whatever they want yeah. to give to you if you're incarcerated versus health care provincial health care being responsible for everybody in the province including mm-hmm. the prisons so we see that in nova scotia alberta it just happened in BC where healthcare, the provincial healthcare is responsible yeah. for everybody. And that actually leads to better results because, you know, you're actually saying it's, it's harder to justify like inequivalency of healthcare or discrimination mm-hmm. when you're the one body providing healthcare for everybody. Whereas in provinces like Ontario, when there's a separate system, it's very two tiered. So you see mm-hmm. uh, correctional health versus healthcare in the community. And I think, um, that would lead to greater what I call equivalence in healthcare. And if mm-hmm. all healthcare professionals are pushing for that, 
I think it also sort of sort of minimizes some of the inhumanity we see in terms of healthcare delivery to people in prison. Great. Um, thank you so much for your input on sort of the specific demographic. I really hope that um, the folks listening can kind of like leave with a sense of like that like prisoners are not someone that they're not the other because mm-hmm. we talk a lot about mm-hmm. the other and especially in the context of this opioid um, issue like opioids were it's a crisis we described as homegrown in our health system mm-hmm. and then we often deny it to people or they end up being criminalized for something whose root causes are very much not an individual responsibility but a community responsibility mm-hmm. absolutely um, yeah, so thank you for listening, and I think um, we're looking forward to continuing sort of the conversation. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. We envision a future without stigma for substance use.